If I were an astute uh, commentator on social things in our country and in the church, uh, which I would not claim to be, but if I were, <laughs> I would... I would say that one of the big problems that we are we are facing, uh, really, to probably to, to crisis type level, I don't I don't know again, but uh, individualism is huge, right? I remember the uh, I don't know if they still have the slogan, but my understanding, maybe this is not correct, but the army a few years ago had that uh, army of one uh, ad campaign. My, my understanding is that. Uh, that was supposed to be portrayed as we all work together toward a common purpose. Uh, instead, the ad campaign turned into you're the next Jason Bourne. Uh, you're the next, uh, not James Bond, that'd be British. Uh, you're the one. It's all about you. Very different. Right? But we're told right, that individualism, that it's, it's all about it's all about me, and it's all about uh, my satisfaction, and then it's all about the accomplishment that I would have, uh, which really places a, a crushing weight on our souls, um, where, where you have thought that for your, yourself, for your family, for your work, for your team, for your school, whatever the case, where you thought, this all depends on, on me, uh, there are two dangers that come from that. The, the danger of success in that, because if it all depended on you and it, it worked, uh, then your head swells in, in pride, uh, which is obviously a serious sin. Then there's the other problem where it all depends on you and then failure comes. Uh, you don't succeed when it all depended on you because it's all about you and how you feel and what you can do. When you don't succeed in that, what's, what's left, Right? Uh, what, what would fill in that vacuum? And, and I think maybe uh, in the time that I spent trying to think through an introduction to today's sermon and these thoughts that popped into my head, again, not writing a book on this subject, uh, I think that the vacuum that's left from that individualist longing and individualist failure is the celebrity culture that has arisen in our, our country and in the church. Uh, because if it's all about the one and I'm not the one, I need to find the one, and I need to follow him uh, or her. Whether she's better at acting than I am, uh, better at singing than I am, whether he's better at throwing or catching uh, than I am, or whether he's better at this job, right? So then we start to take those who have, for whatever reason, some aspect of success, and we start to inflate that. Uh, but then that present, presents that same danger for them, which we just see time and time again, where celebrities uh, rise and then just catastrophically fall because it's not about individuals. That's not how it's supposed to work. And really nobody can bear the weight of that type of expectation uh, or success or failure. Um, it's, it's not, if it's, if it's all about me or, or it's about all about somebody else, right? So it's like, oh, I can't, I need to do this church thing. <laughs> Risen King is, is about what I can do. Uh, and then when that, when I f find myself just regularly, I'm just, I'm falling short about that. You know, I just can't do it. Then it's like, well, maybe it's all about Keith. <laughs> maybe he's the one, right? Because he has more ministry experience than I do and cross-culturally, right? Walking with the Lord along. So if it's not about me, well, maybe it's about him or maybe it's about somebody, a bigger name, 
Uh, maybe it's about John MacArthur, or maybe it's about John Piper, or maybe it's about an author that's, that's dead now, but he's the one. Maybe, it's, maybe if I was more like Spurgeon, or maybe if I was more like Calvin, or Chrysostom, or Augustine, or some other big name that we can inflate, that's, then that's the solution. And you, you, you catch, right, the one person that we haven't talked about in all of this yet? Jesus. Right? So it's not about uh, me being, being better or, or being worse. It's, it's not about Keith being the solution or your favorite pastor that you read about or watch on the, the internet before or after the gathering because whatever our sermons do or don't do. Right? It's, it's about Jesus. And it's about Jesus in the world. It's about Jesus in the church. And that's what Paul's emphasis is in Colossians uh, we just want to start for these last, what, 11 verses, just start a mini-series, just take us a few months. It's just sad to say, you know, turn in Colossians, uh, say that probably for the, the last time, uh, unless you guys want to start again, it's, it's really good. But we may look at the New Testament and think, you know what, Paul was a celebrity pastor, a celebrity apostle, celebrity missionary, he was the guy, so wherever Paul went, Ha <laughs> there was success. You know, it's even like the, the acts of the apostles, it's really more the acts of the Holy Spirit through the lives of the apostles. We may look at that, though, and think like, wow, he wrote so many letters, like, look at the history of these things. We learn so much about Christ from him. He's the guy. If only we still had Paul. You know, that isn't how Paul thought of his life and of his ministry. And it wasn't how it worked either. Like, I think he had a, a fairly accurate perception of how his ministry worked. And we actually see that recorded both in the, the stories about him recorded in Acts and in his own letters. And an accurate assessment of the life of Paul in Acts and his writings in these epistles show Paul as a member of a ministry team because this is how Christ has set up his body to work. That his body has members with, with one head, which is himself. One head, many parts, many members to this body. That's what Paul talks about at length in 1 Corinthians 12. Just as the body is one, has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ in one spirit, we were all baptized into this one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. The body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. But if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, 
but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Uh, Keith commented this week that, that this is sort of a section that you only would, you'd only hear talked about at length if you were preaching expositionally through something. It's kind of like, what do you say from a list of names? But um, and it's obviously incredibly personal to them. We could talk about that, but I want to just highlight some of these things because these were members of the body, members of a ministry team, whether Paul's team in Rome or team of fellow servants in the city of Colossae and beyond. And I think that we can hopefully, by God's grace, see ourselves in uh, these names that may or may not be familiar, some of which we know very little about, um, like many of the servants of the Lord across time and space, maybe even whose names have been forgotten. Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 7 to the end of the book. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you, and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. I see four parties that are represented here. These will be kind of points to walk us through this. Uh, first, it's the messengers. The first two, actually, have three names for this, the messengers. First of this is Tychicus, we find in verse 7. Uh, Paul's official messenger of this letter, right? No postal service in ancient Rome. So if you wanted a letter to get somewhere, uh, you sent somebody else or paid somebody to do it. I, don't, I doubt that he was supported necessarily by this, paid by Paul. He's the official messenger, excuse me, of Colossians and of the letter that we know as the Ephesians. Almost the same thing is written in both of these letters about this brother. Likely not just the one who carried the letter, but the original reader of the letter to the Colossians. Uh, so it's kind of standing in the shoes of Tychicus here. Uh, he's referred to as where he's from as, as having resided in Asia in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. We have an Asian messenger here, uh, mentioned in 2 Timothy 4, which is the, the second imprisonment of Paul, the one where his life was ended. 
So he continues in his service along with the Apostle Paul, also mentioned for his service in Titus chapter 3. So we have the messenger Tychicus. We also have this messenger Onesimus. Onesimus, faithful, beloved brother who is one of you, which means he was from Colossae. There's another book of the Bible which dovetails really nicely with the book of Colossians. It's the, the letter that we know as Philemon. Philemon is written to a man named Philemon, uh, who lived in Colossae, and he had a slave. Uh, he called his slave the, the helpful one, the useful one, uh, but he turned out to not be very useful because he ran away, whatever the circumstances were. Probably trying to get lost in a sea of people, he, he ran away all the way from Colossae to Rome. And while Onesimus, or useful one, uh, who did not yet live up to his namesake, uh, wandered through the city of Rome. He came across a prison house where there was a man chained to a Roman guard whose name was Paul. And somehow in his interactions with Paul, Onesimus, the useful one, um, is converted. He becomes saved. And then through discussing what his background was, trying to piece together this story, Paul, who, who knows Philemon, somehow he had never been to Colossae, but he knows Philemon, makes this connection about Onesimus, this runaway slave. And along with this letter, with Tychicus, he sends Onesimus back to his master with the letter to Philemon in hand. What was that gathering like? Did, did Philemon get it before or after? I don't know. He hadn't been useful as a regular slave, but he was then useful to Paul for ministry. That's what he says. This neat play on words in the book of Philemon. He's useful to me and Philemon. He's useful to you now, not just as a slave, but as a beloved brother, especially to me, Paul says, hoping that Philemon actually would allow Onesimus to go back to Rome, to continue to serve alongside of Paul. These are the two messengers from Paul in Rome back to Colossae. We also have the messenger that we've talked about before, Epaphras in verse 12 and back in chapter 1. As far as we can piece together, Epaphras is the Colossian church planter who first traveled to Rome to find Paul on purpose, unlike Onesimus, and to inform him of the state of the Colossian church, prompting this letter. As I remember saying probably back in January or February, I'm thankful both for the problems in Colossae and for Epaphras going to Rome because it prompted this letter that the Lord has used so much in my life over the last year, and I trust in yours as well. Epaphras was, was a faithful minister of Christ on behalf of the Colossian believers. He had shared the gospel with them and taught the grace of God to them in truth. That's what Paul writes at the beginning. He also continued to pray for them. Jumping ahead a little bit, like I mentioned, verse 12, says that he's a servant of Christ Jesus. He sends his greetings, so he didn't come back. He stayed with Paul. But while he was doing that, he was not idle. It says he was always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all, of, all the will of God. When we think of struggling in prayer, when I think of struggling in prayer, I think I, think I, I come off into more of a struggling to pray, not struggling while praying. I struggled in prayer this morning by just continually being distracted by woodworking projects that I wanted to, well, maybe I should try this with my, with my router. Maybe that would, no, 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 pray, pray, 
right? We, we, get, we struggle to pray, but somehow he wrestled with, with God in prayer on behalf of the Colossians, continuing to bring up these requests. Faithful members of Christ's body. Is, is all that you can do pray? All? Even that question, what, is that, what does that mean? Pray, right? Struggle in prayer, struggle with God in prayer for the sake of Christ's body. Those that we are concerned about, uh, do we worry or do we pray? Do we long for, for them, our, our spouses, our children, our parents, uh, our friends, whoever else? Do we struggle just continuing to pray, continuing to bring the same request. And when we don't see the answer come, do we just give up? Or do we take that to heart what Jesus said, that we ought always to pray and not to lose heart? I haven't seen the result yet. Then pray again and pray again and somehow uh, argue with God about it. I, I want to learn more about this, what this looks like. But maybe we just fall short of the willing to like, no, Lord, this, please do this. I keep seeing this anger. D- deliver them from that. I keep, we, I've tried to talk to him and it hasn't gone forward, but it's like, just pray again and again and again and again, like Epiphras was for them. God, these secular philosophies, these, these other things, they just keep, there's just so many different ditches that are taking them away from you, but you're preeminent. God, just bring them back to Christ. May your word be profitable for them. Day after day, it was just on their heart, a longing for him, right? So if all you can do is pray, oh, if only we knew that all we could do is pray, pray. Be a praying member of Christ's body on behalf of each of us. And his ministry wasn't limited to Colossae. This is hard to not make this like a New Testament introduction class. It's interesting, but this is actually part of a tri-city area uh, just to try to be brief, the other cities that he mentions in uh, Colossians 4, verse 13, Laodicea, Hierapolis, uh, those three, Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis, three close cities, kind of a tri-city area um, mentioned in, in conjunction with each other throughout history. We, we come up with uh, these and other places. And apparently Epaphras didn't just plant the church in Colossae, but he traveled to these other nearby cities and, and, and multiplied gospel work there. We have the messengers, Tychicus, Onesimus, Epaphras. Also, we, we learn about these fellow workers, not the people that left uh, for Paul or came to Paul, but those who had stayed but still sent their greetings. We come across Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, in verse 10. I wonder, Paul's a little bit tricky when it comes to words. Like he talks about someone being a fellow soldier and a fellow slave and a fellow prisoner. Now, Paul's actually in prison. Uh, but he's not actually a soldier, but he calls himself a soldier, but he's metaphorically a soldier in the army of Christ, uh, but he's actually a prisoner uh, of Rome, but he's also a prisoner of Christ. And so it's like, Paul, is, is this like a word picture or is he actually in jail also? And uh, we just never find out that case. Was this guy, you know, Archippus, is he actually a soldier or not a soldier? I have no idea, but I do know Aristarchus was from Thessalonica and that's it. That's Acts chapter 20, verse 4. Just a few mentions. The fellow workers, Aristarchus, who sends his greetings. We, we come across Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. 
Uh, later, we find out that his name is, is also John Mark. He goes by both of these. Related to Barnabas, I hope you remember Barnabas from the book of Acts, the great encourager. You know, it's very likely that Mark or John Mark was an early follower of Jesus. I don't know how young of a man he was, uh, but he saw Jesus. He heard him teach. He followed him. He wasn't one of the apostles, not one of the 12, uh, but yet he was there uh, observing these things and following along. And so, I mean, you can think of this young man an early follower of Jesus, then uh, related to this significant figure named Barnabas, I mean, what promise, right? Like if you had grown up as, a, as an MK or something like that and you found yourself in a, in a church body, it's kind of like, oh, are you also gonna go into ministry? And like this expectation that we sometimes really too early place on young men that show uh, an interest in the Lord and maybe a promise for ministry as, as if uh, loving Jesus means the same as serving him full-time vocationally as a pastor or missionary. There's, there's not an automatic aspect of that, but, but so often there's a pressure that's placed on people like that and that pl- pressure was placed on John Mark. And so along with his cousin, Barnabas, older cousin, along with Paul, John Mark travels on the missionary journeys with Paul to go and plant these churches. And yet, even though he had shown great promise and started along this journey, the missionary life apparently was too hard for him, and he withdrew from them. He left them in the middle of the journey, abandoned them, and and left. He gave up. We read about the persecution, intense persecution, that Paul and Barnabas are stoned at various cities. Was that what it was? We don't know. But he had lost Paul's trust. He had, he had put his hand to the plow and he had walked away. In Acts 16, Paul is unwilling to give him another chance. It's like, no, he's not going to represent Christ and the gospel. He's not coming with me on another ministry. He had his chance. He failed. He's done. Barnabas, too encouraging to like that answer. There's a stark, sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. It splits their partnership. They they reach uh, an unbridgeable impasse, a canyon that divides. And Barnabas is like, no, Mark is not done. We're going to go. Paul takes Timothy, Silas. They go. Boy, I am thankful that by God's grace, that was not the end of Mark's story. Mark's story is uh, promise and failure and restoration because that's how God's grace works, right? Maybe, Maybe Mark had that individualist idea or that celebrity idea like, like his his cousin Barnabas or like his, his mentor Paul and thought that he'd be the next and then he fell short of that. But yet we, we find whatever happened between Jesus and Mark with Barnabas alongside, we see Mark restored to partnership with Paul in Rome. He's mentioned here. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, he's there. He's with, with Paul and apparently he'd wrote about him some other time. You've, you've, got, you've had restri- instructions from him before, about him before. If he comes to you, welcome him. If he comes to you as a messenger of my ministry like Tychicus or like Onesimus or like any of these others. And then in 2 Timothy 4.11, in his dying letter, Paul tells Timothy, get Mark, bring him with you. He is very useful to me for ministry. Gracious restoration. I don't know where you are on that arc. Promise, 
Failure, grace of God restores. Stories are not finished. Peter also mentions Mark in 1 Peter chapter 5, so he has a relationship with multiple of the apostles. You may also recognize his name as the author of one of the four Gospels. History and tradition, right? Is he the guy we talked about? History and tradition record that Mark took the gospel deep into Africa. The apostle to the, to the Africans, apostle to Africa. God's amazing grace, useful servant, author of scripture, pioneering apostle. Thank God for the amazing grace, restoring a disgraced servant. We meet Jesus who is called Justice. We don't know anything else about him. Uh, it could be, you're kind of like, well, why give these two names uh, maybe it's a Hebrew name versus a Roman name, like Saul to Paul. If you've heard a really great sermon about old identity Saul, new identity Paul, and how Jesus like gives you a new name, that's not what happened. Uh, he just had a Hebrew name, and then he had a Greek name. Uh, he was a new person, but it just the name change didn't have anything to do with it. So sorry to put a pin in that one. Uh, so maybe that's that's what's happening here. Like, you may know him as Jesus, but you may know him as Justice, depending on which language you were talking when it was there. Or when I look at this, like, if my name was Jesus, I'd like, I, you're preaching about Jesus and a guy named Jesus, that might be a little bit weird. It's like any time that anybody talks about Peter from the pulpit, I'm always like, what did I do? Oh, no, not me. Right? The Bible Peter. Right? Not, not my namesake, but, or me, not me, my namesake, but, you know, individualism and vanity and arrogance, your name, your name causes you to perk up a little bit. Uh, these three, Tychicus, um, I guess Onesimus, no, no sorry, Aristarchus, I, I lost my place in the list. Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus called Justice were the only Jewish fellow workers that Paul mentions, and the rest apparently are Gentiles, like Luke, mentions Luke, Luke the beloved physician, verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. This is the author of Luke, also the author of Acts, Paul's traveling companion, Paul's uh, semi-biographer. Again, Acts isn't the biography of Paul, it's the biography of Jesus through the Spirit, through his servants in the early church, but yet we also read it and there's a whole lot about Paul (laughs) because the Spirit was doing a lot through Paul. Uh, perhaps Luke was like the, the personal physician to Paul. Paul had all sorts of sicknesses. The man was stoned and almost drowned. I mean, you don't, uh, you know, nights in the cold and in the heat and with food and without food and all of these different things. Like, you don't, you don't just skate through that in your 30s and 40s and 50s and, and everything's just fine and then get thrown into a, into a prison in Rome and all these different places. So, hey, Paul had health issues, real, real person. And and so he had a physician that came alongside him to be like, Paul, you're not going to survive these journeys if you don't have a doctor. That's my take on it. Uh, but from 2 Timothy, it seems that Luke is one of the few that actually just stayed with Paul until his death by martyrdom in Rome. Luke is with him here. Luke was with him before this, during this. Luke was with him after this. Luke used his gifts and his training for the sake of the ministry, both as a doctor and as a writer, that he saw who God had made him to be, and he said, this, I'm going to give up whatever other field, I'm going to use this for the sake of the gospel. Um, And we have Luke, and we have Acts, and we have these writings by Paul 
because of the way that God used used Luke, excuse me. So when we start to think, oh, it's just the preachers, like we find all of these different stories, and even about Luke, it's not just the preachers, right? Doctors, engineers, plumbers, farmers, all of these different fields that we see just Luke and his training being like, you know what? Like I could serve here, but I could also I could also go. I could go and serve, and he does, and the Lord blessed that. I wonder how could your gifts be used for Christ's kingdom around the world? Not that they're not being used here, but how could they be used otherwise? Young people, especially, I think most of you are here, wondering about the future and making plans and making dreams for your sake and your family and your life. Have you considered a life of using the gifts and training that you have received or are receiving and shifting that into a life of pioneering service for the gospel? God calls some to stay. God calls others to go, and he uses both. I don't know what God calls for you, but have you considered it? Have you asked the question, could I dedicate my training and my life to something something that isn't just here? Or am I to put down roots and invest? Ask both questions. Consider prayerfully both things, because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. We also don't know how old Luke was, so your 30s, 40s, 50s, <laughs> maybe you need to ask those questions. Maybe I need to ask those questions. We had these fellow workers like Mark, Jesus called Justice, Luke, also Demas. Mark's is an encouraging story. Demas is a warning story. He's mentioned here, he's mentioned in the letter to Philemon, and then he's given this sad epithet in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Doesn't seem like this was the heat of persecution, trying to fry that little plant the seed that had grown up eagerly and given its life to service, but perhaps it was the thorns that Jesus described as the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires and lusts for other things that choked the word in Demas's heart, and it proved unfruitful. Maybe he was restored. We just have no record of that. Take Demas as a warning. Take Mark as, as hope. Take Demas as warning. It's not just about starting. Right? It's about continuing. And the, the, the just man falls seven times, but he rises up again. It's the difference between Judas and Peter. Right? Judas's heart, captivated by sin, betrayed Christ, despaired, and committed suicide, where Peter actually almost the, maybe, the, was, it, was it a bigger Betrayal? Was it just equal? I don't know. Can you, how can you weigh betrayals like that? But Peter betrays Jesus with the warning that he was going to do so, and yet then he repents, he's restored, and he comes back into ministry. Mark versus Demas, the same sort of story. I don't know where you are on those type of things, but will you persevere? Continuing to believe, continuing to serve, or maybe it's returning to serving. We meet the hostess. Verse 15, give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. We read in numerous letters, uh, we meet 
uh, Lydia in Philippi. We read about Philemon's house, actually, and uh, his wife, don't remember her name, see how quickly I can flip there, Aphia, our sister. Read about Nympha in Laodicea, wealthy Christians hosting the gathering of churches in their homes. Is your money and your home, are they yours or are you stewarding it for Christ, demonstrating hospitality to the saints where needed? She had opened her home. Was her husband a believer or not? We just don't know. But she had said, you know, the Lord's given me this wealth. I want to steward that. We see that happen so many times. Where are we doing those things? Uh, the hostess, we also meet the pastor, Archippus, verse 17. Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. He's called, as I already mentioned, he's called a fellow soldier by Paul. And he's given this charge. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Tychicus, tell Archippus, don't give up. Run the race to the end. Fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And this is a good calling to all of us. Not only should we always pray and not give heart, but we also should not grow weary and well-doing. In due season, excuse me, you will reap if you don't faint. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The word that goes forth from my mouth, kind of like the rain from heaven. It's going to go, it's going to water the ground. And you might have to wait a little bit, but it never returns void. It will accomplish the purpose to which I have set for you, for it. This is a good calling for all of us, but especially to me and to my fellow elders here. Brother elders, brother shepherds, fellow soldiers, Keith, Jeremy, Fred, Gerald, Lowell, Ken. Let us strive to fulfill the ministry that we have received in the Lord here at Risen King at this time. Brothers and sisters, these were ordinary people. Some of them all we know is their names and a compliment. That's it. Ordinary people willing to to reform or even overturn their lives for the gospel. We could read about these things and think that they were all just young single men. Well, except for Nympha, who was a woman. But were they? Is the kingdom only served by... 20-something single guys? Is that that how the church works? It's not. We don't know their ages. We don't know if they were married. We don't know if they had children. Did families come alongside this? We just don't know. But we do know that they were ordinary sinners who were called by Christ to serve, and they, they served. They served by staying in their community like Archippus, like Nympha, Some of them served by leaving for other places to share Christ's message and build Christ's church there. Paul doesn't just write about all types of people coming to Christ and serving Christ. He was experiencing it. Here, he said in in chapter 3, verse 11, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. In Galatians, he adds, there's not male or female here, but there's Christ. Christ in all. Christ who is all. 
And it's not just, Paul's not just like writing about that, but then only serving with with people who are just like him. There were Jews and there were Gentiles serving along with Paul. There were men and women. There were rich and poor. There were slaves who he called free brothers and free brothers who he called slaves. It's just so interesting. There's no exclusion from service to Christ. You hear hear stories or maybe some of you living through those things, enlisting for service in the military, maybe from the draft, and it's like, ah, too tall, too short, too many toes, not enough toes. Uh, Your eyesight's not good enough to be a pilot or whatever else the other case. You're, You're too sick, Steve Rogers, right? Too sick and scrawny to be able to serve in those type of things. There's no exclusion for any of those type of things. And that's not like a pointing finger. That's just, that's the offer. Like whoever you are, like Christ has called you to serve in his kingdom and he has equipped you to do that. He, call, he has called you right where you are and equipped you just as you are to serve him and he'll, and he'll transform you to, to continuing to serve him. The story of the advance of the gospel in the New Testament and beyond is filled with characters. Real people who trusted Christ and served him in various ways. Forgive me for being redundant in my illustrations, but I love Charles Dickens. When I first read A Tale of Two Cities, confused and bored because there's just so many stinking characters. And then at the end, every single one of them fit into the narrative. And so then I read Oliver Twist, and why am I meeting so many people? But I was like, no, I'm going to trust the author because he's smarter than I am. And I was right to trust the author because he took every single one of those characters. They played a role in the story. Do you see? Is there an author? There is a sovereign author who wastes no characters in his story for the glory of his son. you're, You're not in the wrong place. You don't have the wrong gifts. Perfectly placed. What's your part in the story? His story, not my story. Not not my story or the celebrity who would be better than me, not his story, but Jesus' story. May we 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 call ourselves members of Risen King. There's a reason for that. May we, we truly see and embrace Christ as our risen king. May we see ourselves as the servants of that king and ambassadors of that kingdom like Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5. God making his appeal through us. Be reconciled to God. At the center of Paul's hymn to Christ, Colossians 1, 15 to 20. This is my recap of Colossians. The center of that, Paul writes, verse 18, that in everything, he, Christ, might be preeminent in everything, old creation, new creation, everything, physical and spiritual, Christ might be preeminent. He might be supreme or have supremacy, that he might have first place. So we conclude our time in Colossians. Let me ask you, Is Christ preeminent in your thinking about salvation? Against other worldly philosophies and empty deceit, human traditions that may may try to distract you from Christ, do you match what it says in chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, that it is Jesus 
his death has delivered us from the domain of darkness, that it's in Christ and Christ alone that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Is Christ preeminent in your thinking about salvation? No other name. Yours or any other religious leader under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, like the apostles said in Acts 4. Is Christ preeminent in your thinking about salvation? Is Christ preeminent in your thinking about him? When you think about Christ, is it to the extent of the greatness that he's presented? Is he as great in your thinking as he is proclaimed by Paul? Is Christ preeminent in your thinking about God's word? Really, everything from Genesis to Revelation is all about him. We can read and be distracted from Christ, or we can read and be centered on Christ. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, etc., all the way to Jude and Revelation, it is about Jesus. Is Christ preeminent in your thinking and in your study of theology and God's word? Is Christ preeminent, chapter 3, in your affections, your heart's desires? Love the Lord your God. Love Christ your King with all of your heart. Is your heart set on him, your mind, your, your longings? Are they set on these things above? Why above? Because that's where Christ is. Is it all about him and where he is? Is Christ preeminent in your repentance? Is it you just trying your best to keep God's rules? Or do you recognize that you can die to whatever that sin is because you have died in Jesus? Do you remember? Put off because it, you, you have put off in Christ. And then put on these new things because you have put on Christ. You have shed the filth when he died on the cross for you. And you were united to him by faith. And you have been clothed in his righteousness. So when you look down and you see a garment of truth and you hear lies coming out of your mouth, right? Like, like, why would I do this? Jesus set me free from this. In your repentance, is Christ preeminent? Or is it about you just trying better? Is it about you? Is it about me? Or is it about Jesus? Is Christ preeminent in your, in our worship? Let the word of, about Christ dwell in you richly so that we teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. While we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Is Christ preeminent in your home, wives and husbands, parents, and children, preeminent in your workplaces, masters or servants, managers or underlings, supervisors or just the normal workers, right? Although everybody has to have a position now because of our individualistic culture. Is Christ preeminent in your work? Is Christ preeminent in your relationship with unbelievers, looking for open doors, praying for open doors, declaring the mystery of Christ and walking in wisdom toward them? And then is Christ preeminent in your service for his kingdom? Like the messengers and uh, like the fellow workers and like the hostess, uh, like the pastor. Is Christ first. Christ is first. Christ is first. Christ, you are first. I do not, do not live like that. Oh, how I want to. 
May Jesus be first here forever. Get to come to the table, to be preeminent in our gathering, the climax, coming to the Lord's table. Jesus, who died for us. Jesus, who lived for us, who died for us, who rose for us, for you, who gave himself and then gave us this picture. So not only will we hear the gospel, we could actually taste the gospel at the table. And as Christ, as surely as you will come and receive from the hands of the elders who, who just stand in, uh, on behalf of Christ to, to say he has given himself for you. This, this bread broken because Christ's body was broken for you. This blood shed because Christ sacrificed himself an altar before God as a spotless lamb so that you could be forgiven. You could have redemption through his blood pictured in this cup. If you're a follower of Christ, then then come. Come to the the preeminent one who who stands at this table and offers himself to you again because you need him. He is sufficient for you. You're not a follower of Jesus, as we've said before, you know, it's like this isn't for you, but, but it is for you because it's an offer made to you. Like that it's, it's this uh, simple. Bring nothing to Christ who has done everything and receive him and the forgiveness offered in his name. And this is just such a picture of faith. It's like, so will, will you believe? Will, will you, the empty hands, come, turning from sin, coming to Christ to receive himself. Come, Christ, preeminent over all, now and forever.